final words Jesus spoke at the cross before he breathed his last, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. At the cross, Jesus Christ did not take out a loan for your sin. He satisfied the debt. It's over, it's been won, and we get to, by faith, freely receive the gift of salvation and walk in his victory over the grave. If that's good news for you this morning, why don't you just let the Lord know by saying amen. We praise him, we praise him, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege of singing this good news. We are fighting a battle that you have already won. That by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, we can freely receive by faith a gift of salvation in his name. That you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, are pleased to dwell within us the resurrection power of Jesus Christ within us today as a reminder of what it is that you have done for us and to empower us in the face of difficulty no matter what we face. And so, Lord, will you infuse gospel life into our bones this morning? As we are reminded of your goodness through these songs, as we are reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness through your word, today, Father, will you once again edify your gathered church, glorify the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, sanctify us today in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. Father, speak it to our hearts this morning. We ask all these things in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna encourage you to open me uh, with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Judges chapter two is where we're gonna be together this morning. If you're new with us, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're really glad that you've chosen to join in with us this morning. And last week, our church family started a new message series in the book of Judges. If um, you don't know how to use the Bible, you're not familiar with the Bible, there should be one right underneath a seat somewhere near you. There's a table of contents on the inside. That'll give you the page number to the book of Judges. And um, as you're navigating the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. So look for the big number two uh, whenever you get to the book of Judges. And today we're gonna cover Judges chapters two and chapter three. We're gonna jump right into things this morning. Um, it's got a lot more ground. We're gonna try to cover the way we did last week. And man, we saw last week that, that the book of Judges is just like the Holy Bible's hot mess express, right? I mean, it is, it is just chaos at every single turn of the page. And we see throughout this book, God's people repeating this exact same cycle over and over and over again. God has saved his people, rescued his people, delivered his people. And, and so they're at peace for a moment, but then they forget the Lord. They turn their backs on him. They fall into sin. The Lord allows them to be overcome by their enemies. And as they're overcome by their enemies, they cry out to God for help. And so God raises up a judge, a military leader, a civil leader, who rescues them from the hand of their oppressors and then they enjoy relative peace, but then the whole cycle repeats itself again and again and again. So last week in Judges chapter one, in the beginning of chapter two, we saw how to ruin your life, right? Uh, we, we just saw like, hey, if you do what the people of God do in Judges chapter one, Judges chapter two, this is the surefire path to ruining your life. So if you wanna ruin your life, just ignore what God says, reject what God offers, trust your own strength and do your own thing. 
The book of Judges shows us a picture of what our lives look like and what the world looks like when we decide that we wanna reject God's word, reject God's will, and go our own way to do our own thing. And so today, what we're gonna see in a similar thread as we continue to build some background context up to the introduction of our first three judges, today we're gonna see the consequences that follow that we bring upon ourselves when we forget to remember the Lord. Over the, the, the course of the past school year, I've got three boys. I take them to school usually four mornings a week. And what we started doing on our trips to school is we've been listening to audiobooks. And so we find a book that they like and we listen to it. So we'd been listening to a book going right up to their Christmas break and we wrapped it up literally the day their Christmas break started. And we're like, all right, well, we'll start a new book whenever we get a drop off time in the new year. Um, we had Seek Week going on as a church and our, our family schedule got disrupted by that a little bit. So I wasn't driving them to school as much. And so we get in the second week of the school year and we're getting in the truck one day to go to school and our boys are like, hey, did you download another book? And I'm like, no, you know, I, I forgot. I'll do it when I get home tonight. And then get back in the truck the next day. Hey, did you download a book yet? I'm like, no, I forgot. I'll, I'll do it tonight. And this, this went on, you know, for, for a little while. And then we get to the beginning of last week and it's Monday morning and, and the boys are like, hey, did you, did you download another book? And I'm like, I, I have not done that yet. I'll, I'll remember to do it when I get home tonight. Um, it was always like when we were on our way out the door and I was like, I just don't have time right now. I'll do it this evening. And, and so sure enough, once again, I forgot. And the next morning they let me have it. Right, they're like, hey, you've been saying for like two weeks now, you're gonna download another book, that we're gonna listen to another book. And so finally I said, okay, I, I set a, a reminder in my phone so that when I got home that evening and, and my day was pretty much wrapped up, I could find another book. So we found another book, we started listening, all has been restored in, in the truck on the way to school in the mornings. There's consequences that follow us when we forget things. There's consequences that follow when we forget. You know, it's one thing to, to forget something minor, like for forgetting to download an audiobook, but what are the consequences that follow when we forget to remember the Lord? What consequences do we invite upon our lives? What troubles do we, do we bring upon ourselves simply because we do not remember the Lord and remember his goodness to us? But here's the good news for us this morning is, is even though you and I sometimes really are bad about remembering the Lord, the Lord never forgets us. And that's what we're gonna see in Judges 2 and 3 this morning. When we forget to remember the Lord, the Lord is faithful to remember us. So let's dive right into Judges chapter two this morning. We're gonna read beginning with verses one through five. This is where we left off last week and I told you we we're gonna revisit some of these things. So Judges two, let's begin by reading verses one through five. It says, now the angel of the Lord, hang on to that, we're gonna come back in in a second, went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. 
Verse one, we're told that the angel of the Lord came to the people. And all throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is closely associated with the presence of God himself. We see him mentioned a number of times all throughout the book of Judges. Uh, Judges chapter five, we'll see next week in the song of Deborah, appears to Gideon in Judges chapter six, appears to the parents of Samson, Judges chapter 13, all throughout the Old Testament. And and whenever these appearances take place, we call this a theophany. It's a manifestation of the presence of God in a different form. So think about things like the burning bush, the cloud in the wilderness. We call these theophanies. Now, interestingly enough, the angel of the Lord never appears anywhere in the New Testament. So a lot of scholars and theologians actually believe that the angel of the Lord is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. John chapter one tells us that Jesus is the word, the capital word, the logos, who became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is really the ultimate theophany, the final theophany. He is the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God. And so at any rate, whatever the form and manifestation is here, this is on behalf of the Lord. And we associate the angel of the Lord with the presence of God himself, because in moments like this, the angel doesn't come and say to them, thus says the Lord, The angel comes saying, I say to you. God's speaking directly to his people. The angel went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, why Gilgal? Why is that significant? Well, if you go back and you read the book of Joshua, what you find is it's at Gilgal that the Lord really affirms his covenant to his people. He's brought them safely across the Jordan River. And as they cross over, the Lord tells them to set up memorial stones. And the Lord speaks through Joshua to the people and says, hey, Whenever your children ask you, what are these stones all about? You're supposed to tell them about everything that the Lord did for you. How he delivered you from the bondage of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And these stones will be a testimony to future generations of the faithfulness and the goodness and the deliverance of God. And so so the difference between Gilgal, which means to roll, where in Joshua 5, the Lord says, I have rolled the reproach of Egypt away from you. Bochum is a place of weeping. So Gilgal was a place where the people worshiped the Lord because of his faithfulness. But Bochum was a place of weeping because they had become faithless. And yet here is the Lord coming from Gilgal where he had affirmed the covenant to Bochum to remind the people that he is a deliverer who is mighty to save. To remind them of the promises of his word. But understand, by coming to remind them the promises, that means both the promise of his blessing and the warnings of his judgment. So what we see in verses one through five is that when we forget to remember the Lord, we will face the consequences for our sin. When we forget to remember the Lord, we'll face the consequences of our sin. At the end of chapter one, we see over and over and over again that the tribes of Israel did not drive out the inhabitants of the land the way the Lord had instructed them to. That's where we left off last week. You see, all the tribes, just by name, they did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not drive out the inhabitants. And through Moses, a generation before, the Lord had spoken both the blessings and the curses that came along with the covenant that he was making with his people. And and listen, if you go back, if you really dig into the Old Testament and you look at the covenant God makes with his people, the people wholeheartedly agree to the terms of the covenants. It's, it's not like they accept it begrudgingly. And so the Lord lays it out to them. He says, you'll be my people. I will be your God. If you walk in my ways, if you keep my word, if you follow the sound of my voice, I, I will drive out your enemies from in front of you. I'll bless your families. I will multiply you. He says at one point, you as a nation, you will be the head and not the tail. And, and so the people are like, that sounds pretty good. Let, let's go with the Lord. 
But, but then with the promise, he also gives a warning. He says, but listen, if you make a covenant with these nations, to make a covenant with the nations is to break your covenant with me. Make a covenant with these nations, I will not drive them out before you. And you'll fall into bondage, you'll fall into oppression, you'll fall into captivity, sickness will come upon you. You're gonna invite harm into your life. And again, when the people heard these things, they said, yes, we agree. We will follow the Lord. If we go with him, if we walk in his ways, we'll be blessed. If we don't walk in his ways, we know that we invite judgment upon ourselves. And it's so important for us to keep that in mind because it's easy when you're reading a book like Judges or other parts of the, of the Old Testament and you see God's people being conquered. We ask the question, we're like, well, what kind of a God allows these types of things to happen to his people? Listen, when, when Israel falls into the hands of her enemies, that, that's the Lord saying, listen, what is happening right now is exactly what I promised you was gonna happen if you acted this way. It's, it's, it's the Lord still being faithful to his word. He'd promise him. And the people agreed wholeheartedly to all of these terms. As followers of Jesus Christ, you know, the good news of the gospel is that God delivers us from sin. But church, we have to recognize just because we have been delivered from the penalty of sin does not mean there are not still consequences for us if we continue to live in sin. The apostle Paul says it like this in, in Romans chapter eight, verse 13. He warns, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to your flesh, if you're giving in to your sinful desires, you'll die. He says, but if by the Spirit, by the power of God dwelling within you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. The Lord had warned them. He said, listen, if you, if you turn your back on me, like it's not going to go well for you. If you mix with these nations, it's not gonna go well for you. You're gonna be ensnared by their gods. You're gonna be entrapped in sin. It's gonna break your relationship with me. He gave them the guardrails that showed them what it looked like to walk in loving fellowship and harmony with him, and they continually broke this covenant. And sometimes, you know, these types of things happen. You, you read through, and this happens in our life, like, like we're facing the natural consequences of our own bad decisions, and we're like, God, why is this happening to me? It's like, I told you this was going to happen. Yeah, let me just uh, group participation this morning. How many of you ever signed something that you didn't actually read before you signed it? <laughs> we all did it like updating our phones this morning, right? <laughs> I agreed to the terms and conditions, no problem. I had, I had a different illustration for this, but the Lord gave me just a, a fresh one here yesterday. I went with a group of guys, some from within our church, we're out in Savannah uh, playing paintball with all of our sons yesterday, about 20 of us all together. And, um, and so, you know, when you go play paintball, like there's a little bit of risk and danger involved. Those things pack a punch. If you've never been hurt by a paint, you know, hit by a paintball, you don't forget it. Um, after, after you feel it, you gotta wear a mask and goggles, you know, because these things can do some damage. And so I got three boys, and so, you know, including me plus them, I gotta fill out four waivers when I get there. And it's your know, names and birth dates and address and phone numbers and all this stuff. And so what am I doing? Man, I'm just scribbling one after the other, after the other, after the other, sign them off and, and hand them on. Good to go, right? And, and so, so I sign my waivers, we go play. And, but but let, let's imagine this for just a moment. You know, I woke up this morning, this is legit. I woke up this morning, I've got like a perfect triangle of welts right in my rib cage. Somebody had a really tight shot group. I mean, it was like, it was like eight years old, solid future for that kid. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so this would be really, really foolish of me. If service ends today and I drive out to the place we play paintball in Savannah and say, I want all my money back because I woke up this morning, I got some welts, I got some bruises from these things. What are they gonna do in that moment? Gonna produce a waiver. Because I guarantee you there's probably some language in that waiver that's like, hey, you need to get over it, right? Because you, you understood the risks. 
You knew this was gonna happen just because you didn't read it or just because you didn't pay attention to it doesn't mean that it's somebody else's fault this has now happened. The people wholeheartedly agreed to the terms of the covenant the Lord made with them. They did not listen to the warning of his voice. So church, understand this morning, the good news of the gospel is that God offers deliverance for sinners through salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. But while God offers deliverance for sinners, he does not promise that we will be free from the consequences of our sin. If we decide that we want to go a different route than the one the Lord has prescribed for us, we shouldn't be surprised when we're facing the consequences of our actions. Now, um, this, this next section here, I'm just going to summarize for us. This is what Ashton read for us earlier in our time together this morning. But chapter two, I want to pay close attention to verse 11. So this recaps when Joshua had died. This happens at the end of the book of Joshua. So this has already been told in scripture. And, and after Joshua dies and the elders of that generation who had seen all the mighty works of the Lord, after they've died, this is what we learn in jo Judges 2.11. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord. So when we forget to remember the Lord, we'll face the consequences of our sin. Second, when we forget to remember the Lord, we will forsake our responsibility to the next generation. We will forsake our responsibility to the next generation. The generation that saw all of God's mighty works has now passed away. And so there's a vacuum of godly leadership. Moses is gone. Joshua is gone. The people are sliding into rebellion. Nobody is there upholding the standard and the authority of God's law and his word. And it all happened because they forgot to remember. They forgot to remember the Lord. A generation, they crossed over the Jordan River and they quickly forgot the stones. They forgot the place of remembrance. They forgot the deliverance of God, the salvation of God, the might of God, the power of God. They've quickly forgotten all of these things. You know, if you pay attention as you're, as you're reading the Bible, if you're reading the Bible chronologically, especially this year, I'd encourage you to pay attention to this, but, but even beyond scripture, if you just study the rhythms and the cycles of church history, this is how spiritual decline happens really is like a generational fade. It happens in a few steps. You, you get one generation that accepts the faith. Receive the word of God, grateful to receive the word of God. God is blessing, God is moving, God is reviving. So, so one generation accepts the word of God, kind of becomes the norm. And because this generation has accepted the word of God, and the, the next generation just kind of assumes the faith. Like, well, everybody's a Christian, right? Like, we're all believers, and as long as it's a church, that, that means it's good, and, 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 you know, as long as it was a sermon, that, that was okay, and so we, we don't pay attention to things maybe quite the way we should. We sort of take it for granted, and then because one generation assumes the faith, the next generation grows kind of apathetic to the faith. It's like, well, you know, we weren't explicitly clear over here about what Scripture says and what we need to be doing and how we need to be living and who God is and who we are. So, so maybe those things aren't that big of a deal, and maybe I can just take or leave this whole thing altogether. And then after that generation becomes apathetic to the faith, the next generation just abandons the faith. And it happens, again, if you, you look in Scripture, it happens in church history, it can all happen within a span of just about 40 years. It goes quickly. Tim Keller, in his commentary on the book of Judges, has a really good reflection on this. He wrestles with the question of when, when generational lapses happen, like whose, whose fault is it? 
You know, is it the fault of the older generation to, to not pass the baton? Is it the fault of the younger generation that, that they've not picked up the baton? And, and the reality is, if you look in scripture, if you study church history, the reality is, is, is that really both parties generally have some sort of blame here. Sometimes it is the fault of the older generation to remember the stones. Sometimes it's the fault of the younger generation to believe the stories. And so, so one generation neglects to tell the stories of God's faithfulness, or the next generation hears the stories but simply chooses not to believe them and, and moves on. But the reality is no, no family, no individual, no church, no institution is a one-size-fits-all here. Both sides generally share some type of blame. But I believe these, these words have so much relevance for us as, as a church culture today, because if you really just kind of pay attention statistically and anecdotally to where we're at in a culture, guys, we're kind of right now in that place between apathy and abandonment. Like it's, it's a really, really sensitive hour right now. This, uh, these stats come from a Pew Research Forum. NPR had an article this week where they were highlighting some of these statistics as well. This was just, just 17 years ago. 17 years ago, back in 2007, religious nuns, not, not N-U-N, like, like the nun, religious nuns, N-O-N-E, people with no religious affiliation, uh, that was about 16% of the American population. Now, understand, back in 2007, that was a big jump. Like, I remember uh, being in Bible college around this time and talking about what a big deal this was, that that number was all the way up to, uh, to 16%. But look at what's happened in just 17 years in just 17 years, that number has jumped from 16% to 28% of the U.S. population. So religious nuns, those with no religious affiliation whatsoever, they now outnumber those who identify as Catholic at 23% and those who identify as Protestant evangelical like us at 24%. No religious affiliation whatsoever. If you were here as we wrapped up the book of James on Christmas Eve morning, I shared some statistics. Great book I'd really encourage you to, to check out is The Great Dechurching um, that breaks down some of these statistics. There's a lot to be concerned about, but there's also a lot of things to be optimistic about. Um, but it breaks down some of this. And, and what you can learn and what, what you, you can see statistically is happening right now. Guys, we are literally today in the middle of the largest mass exodus of professing believers in the history of the Western church. In the last few decades, more people have walked away from the church than the number of people in our nation who came to faith in Christ in both Great Awakenings and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. There's been an exodus in the opposite direction. There's rising a generation that does not know the Lord, that does not know the Lord, that does not know the mighty works that he's done. If you haven't paid attention over the last several years, a lot of our Joshua's are passing on to glory. I remember it just really, really hit me hard when, when Billy Graham passed away several years ago. I think some of us thought he was gonna outdo Methuselah, right? Like he was just, just gonna be around forever. He's, he's gone. A few years later, it's a, it's a theologian like R.C. Sproul, who you've probably impact, been impacted by him, whether you know it or not. Last year, he was a pastor to a whole generation of pastors, Tim Keller, who, who went home to glory to be with Jesus in church. Listen, listen, nobody else is coming. Like it's, it's on us right now. It is on us to be faithful and handing down to the next generation. As Jude said, the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. We cannot neglect our responsibility to point to the stones, to point to God's faithfulness. In so many ways for our church family, that's what Seek Week was all about. It was, Seek Week was born out of a burden that we have a generation that does not know the mighty works of God. 
And it was so powerful over the course of that week to see dozens of people publicly respond to the gospel. We're going to celebrate several baptisms today at the end of our third service of people who are already eager to publicly display their faith in Jesus Christ. And we were so eager to see this happen because we want this generation to see there is a God and he is real and he is still moving and changing and saving lives. This is the good news for us as people who stand on the other side of the empty tomb. What you can also see as you study scripture and as you study church history is that what follows accepting, assuming, apathy, and abandonment is fifth, awakening. That's what's next. God moves in revival when things look like they could not possibly get any worse. The good news for us as believers who know about an empty tomb, it means for us that we as a culture are never post-Christian, we're always just pre-revival. And that is some of the good news. Man, you study Gen Z. Yeah, there is a large departure from the church, but the Gen Zers who are following Jesus, they're outrunning us right now. They are not waiting on us to hand them the baton. They see it on the ground and praise God, they're picking it up and they're running with it. And we need to do everything that we can to make sure they're equipped to run well. We cannot forsake our responsibility to the next generation. Verses 11 through 18, this is what we go on to learn about Israel's unfaithfulness. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord. So there it is. This is the generation that abandoned. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. So God's just doing what he said he was going to do. And the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Third, when we forget to remember the Lord, what we see this morning is that we will favor false gods and abandon true worship. We will favor false gods and we will abandon true worship. Verse 11, we see a phrase that we'll see repeated multiple times all throughout the book of Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this cycle just repeats again and again and again. So here we see that they've turned to worship Baal, who was the pagan god of the Canaanites. Um, Baal what was not just one God. There were many forms of Baal, many manifestations of Baal. And Baal was worshiped along with the Ashtaroth, or, or next to the Ashtaroth. And these were gods of, of love and of fertility and gods of war. And so by worshiping Baal, the people of God were seeking out a blessing that their families would be blessed and that they would have victory over their enemies. Here's the problem with all that. The Lord had already promised them he was gonna give them those things. Like God had already made his covenant. He said, hey, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight the battle for you. I'm gonna drive out the enemies before you. I'm, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna keep you. I'm gonna multiply you. You will be the head. You will not be the tail. He's spoken all these things over his people. He's promised you, I'll give you these things. But it, it's kind of like we saw last week. It's, it's, it's sort of this posture that we take sometimes. You're like, yes, Lord, I trust that you are God. You're the only true God. You can do all these things. But just in case you don't, I've got like a little backup God over here. 
Just trying to, trying to make sure I got all my bases covered, just in case maybe there is a 0.01% chance that you're not the right one. But we're going we're gonna to tack this one on over here as well. You know, we as, uh, in our culture today, we, we might not identify with the language of, of gods as much. You know, when we think of a god, we think of a little wooden statue and, you know, setting up some shrine in our home and, and getting before it and making many sacrifices to it and praying in front of it. And so we might not have something like that. The word that, that carries over to the New Testament for false worship that applies, I think, much more easily for us today, translates a little more cleanly, is idolatry. Like, that's the danger that we always face as believers today. You see, see the language of idolatry all over the New Testament. If you go to the New City Catechism, which, parents, by the way, this is a fantastic resource for kids that I encourage you to, to check out. Uh, Foundations for the Faith, New City Catechism, asks the question, what is idolatry? And here's the answer. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. So they were trusting something other than God to do what only God can do. And you and I face this exact same danger today. So again, maybe you don't bow your knees and worship a God named Baal. You know, but, but for many today, the, the Baal that you worship, the idol in your life, man, it's just, it's your money and your stuff. You're just, you're trusting in your money to provide you with security and with comfort, temporal things that one day will all be gone. You are trusting in temporal things to give you eternal security. And it can't be done. For, for others, man, your, your bail might be something as simple as your house. Like you're just convinced if you can get every nuance of your house and your yard and your cars and all these things, your estate, if you can get all these things right, you, you, can, you can create your own little functional heaven here on earth, sans God. And so, so some of us, may, maybe, maybe your bail is your career. I mean, so, so again, you're not making a blood sacrifice, but what you're doing is you're sacrificing your health, you're sacrificing your family, you're sacrificing your sanity, maybe you're even sacrificing your integrity all in the name of personal advancement or career advancement. For many of our culture today, Baal or the false god is just the god of sex. And, and, and absolutely, church across the board, that the modern sexual revolution has become its own religious system. And there's many people worshiping at that altar today. Instead of submitting sexual desires to the lordship of Jesus Christ, many today will bow their knees to their sexual desires, even if they go outside the boundaries of God's word. So, so we might not have a false god that we worship, but every single one of us is prone to idolatry. An idol is simply anything that you love more than Jesus. And, and the way you can tell that you love it more than Jesus, you can tell you love it more than God, is that when it comes to between choosing that or choosing him, you just keep choosing that. And, and here's the thing that we need to see about the God of the Bible. He is a God of love. He is a God of grace. He, he is a God who seeks to rescue us and reconcile us and redeem us. But church, please don't miss this this morning. The uppercase, uppercase, large G God, he, he does not mix with lowercase little L lords. He doesn't do that. He's, he's not to be viewed as, as one God among many options. He's only to be viewed as the only God, and there is no other. And when we forget to remember that, when we forget who he is, when we forget who he's called us to be, when we forget how he's called us to live our lives, we open ourselves up to all types of religious confusion and false worship that doesn't lead us closer to him or lead us on a discovery of our true self, but leads us further away from him and completely forgetful of who he desires for us to be. And so we, we, we cannot cease to remember the Lord because in forgetting the Lord, we fall into idolatry. 
I'm going to summarize this next section for us again. We just see in verses uh, 16 through the end of chapter 2. So the Lord raises up judges. And so we're given an overview here of, of these judges. The Lord raises them up. The people cry out for help. They call on him for help. We need someone. He raises up a judge. And the judge delivers them. But then the, the whole cycle repeats. And, and what we'll see through the book of Judges is the, book, the, the cycle doesn't just repeat. Sometimes it gets worse and worse and worse. You know, by the time we get all the way to Samson, I know we look at him as a, as a hero. That dude was jacked up. I mean, he was a messed up person. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse as we go. The more we repeat these same cycles, you know, the, the more insensitive we become in repeating the same patterns of sin. So the Lord raises them up. He does what he said he would allow to do. He allows them to be overcome by their enemies. He leaves the nations there. Uh, end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three, tells us to test the people, to allow them to be tested, to see, will they return to him? Will they turn their back on these false gods? Will they turn their backs on idols? Will they return to true worship? It says he allows that generation to see war. So, so to test them, to see will they return to him as the true Lord or will they continue to trust in Baal for deliverance from their enemies? So when we forget to remember the Lord, fourth, what we see at the end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three, is that we will fail in moments of spiritual testing. We will fail in moments of spiritual testing. Because God's people fell into sin, he allows them to fall into the hands of their enemies. That's what he told them was going to happen, and they agreed it's okay for that to happen. So not on God, this is on the people. God allows them to experience war to see if they would turn to him or turn to Baal. And so time and time again, we just see the people falling away because they forget the Lord. Instead of driving the sinful influence out from among them as God instructed them to, they think they can do one better. No, I feel like we can, we can make peace. I feel like we can, we can kind of make this work out. And they try to convince themselves. You know, I know the Lord says that the nations will be too much for us, that we'll be overcome by them, that we don't have the discipline, we don't have the trust, we don't have the self-control. But, but God doesn't know us the way we know ourselves. We think we can do a little bit better here, and so they don't drive out sinful influence from the land. Um, I don't know about your family, during the whole month of December, I feel like we collect a new dessert every single day. It's awesome. It's like my favorite month of the year for that reason. Uh, Emily makes these incredible Oreo balls and, and she's like smacking my hand like every night, you know, because she's like, we're not even gonna make it to Christmas week, right? And, and, and so I'm eating all those. She makes really good Christmas cookies, but you guys bring us awesome goodies sometimes too. And so, I, I, man, I just, just engorge myself on this stuff. Like I'm, I've got a sweet tooth and, and, and it's hard for me to say no to these things. And so especially that week uh, between Christmas and New Year, you know, we're home a lot and, and there's not as much to do. I, every time I make a pass through the kitchen, I'm grabbing something, right? Like it's a piece of fudge, it's a cookie, it's something. But what I've done the last few Januaries is I've tried to like kind of detox all that. I was like, I'm gonna go like low sugar, low carb during the month of January. So the last couple of days of the year, I was telling Emily and the boys, I was like, hey, eat it now because it, it's got to go in the trash, you know, before we get it January 1st. And the reason for that is because I know myself. I know I don't have the discipline. I know I don't have the self-control. But you know, there were a handful of things that I didn't get a whole lot of. And I was like, maybe it'll still be good by the end of January. And so this is, this is what I reasoned in my mind. Most of this was sitting out like on our kitchen counter. I was like, you know, if it's not in plain sight, if I just move it from the kitchen counter two feet over behind the closed door pantry, it won't be as tempting for me. And guys, for the first two weeks of the year, I did a, pretty, I did a really good job. I stuck to my guns, no dessert, not doing these things. Seek week came. 
And, and it was a crazy long week, and, and we were here a lot, and I was exhausted. We got to the end of Seek Week. We were here late on a Sunday night. I get home. I'd not had dinner. And so my dinner that night was like all the leftover dessert in our house. It was awesome. <laughs> I had deluded myself into thinking that I was somebody that I wasn't. It'll be different this time. It'll be different this time. I I know that I can't make a pass through here on a normal day without grabbing two or three things. Maybe I can leave it here in my presence for a full month and go without messing up. And man, this is is how so many of us want to reason with sin. We we come to this place where we're ready to make a change. And we know it maybe needs to be a radical change. But then we lie to ourselves. And we say, I can live among the nations. I can do this. I, I, know I've, I know I've hit a wall every single time I've been down this road before, but it's gonna be different this time. It's gonna be different this time. I've made new commitments this time. I'm doing things differently that this time. And so, so listen, th- this is gonna sound radical to some of you this morning, but the reality is like, this is maybe something you need to do before you leave this room or definitely before the end of this day because your history is, you, you just can't hang with it. And so guys, like, I want to I challenge you. you know, some of us, you're in this place where it's like, well, I know every time I drink, I end up having one more than I should, but it's going to be different this time. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just limit myself to one, but you don't have that control. You don't have that willpower. And, and so what you need to do until you at least have more discipline or self-control or maybe permanently because you've got addictive tendencies is to go home and pour out every single bottle that you have and then invite accountability into your life. For, for many today, you're, you're just like, man, I, I know like social media leaves me in a bad place. It leaves me depressed. It leaves me anxious. It leaves me feeling empty. I'm constantly sinfully envying others and comparing myself. I know that it's causing problems for me. I numb myself on it. So maybe you're not addicted to alcohol, but you're addicted to that screen. And what you're trying to tell yourself is like, well, it'll be different this week. I'll limit myself, you know, 10 minutes a day, but you, you don't have that discipline or willpower. And until you have it, what you maybe need to do is go delete every single app that you have. Ladies, I'm begging you today, especially like, don't, don't fall for this. Do not fall for this. Because this is, I, I see women get trapped into this all the time. You know, I know every single time he, he calls me, it's really because he just wants to hook up with me. But he's making some really good promises right now. Maybe this time is going to be different. And what you need to do today is you need to delete the number and maybe tell him to get lost. Guys, we can't dwell among the nations. We don't have it within ourselves. Like we cannot live among sinful presence. It's constantly leading us away from the Lord. It's not that we live our lives in a bubble. We walk by the power of the Spirit, not in fear. But you and I have to, by the power of the Spirit, exercise self-control and discipline and bring all these things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And until we have, we have no business flirting with sin that we should be actively working to put to death. We have to be so, so careful that we not deceive ourselves into believing that we can pass the test. But here's the good news for us as we start to get to the end of this chapter this morning. The good news for you and I today is that our foolishness, our repeated foolishness in sin does not nullify the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our our lives are the cycle of judges. Right, like, I, I mean, we're, we're, everything's good, but then we, we, we start turning our backs on the Lord. 
doing our own thing. Sin overcomes us. Lord, I need help. We're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded we have a savior. We're reminded we have the Holy Spirit who powers us through sin. We, we have a relative amount of peace in our life. We're having victory and then Monday comes. You know, it's easy for us to judge the people of the book of Judges. Like, how do they keep repeating these same cycles every several decades? Guys, you and I can repeat these cycles like every seven days. I mean, we're, we're just not that much better. This tells the story of our own heart. It tells the story of our repeated foolishness in trying to do our own thing. But in telling that story, it also tells us of the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus so let's go down to chapter three. The people, here we go. It's, let's, we've done all the background work now for a couple weeks. We've laid the foundation. Let's meet our first three judges this morning, our first three human judges. Uh, judges chapter three, verses seven through 11. Here's the story of Othniel. Verse seven, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So here we go again. But we've seen this language already once. Here we go again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. And serve the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushim Reshathiam, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushim Reshathiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, we met him last week, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushim Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushim Rishathiam. So the land had a rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Just personal transparency here. I practiced Cushim Rishathiam so much this week. <laughs> two services this morning. I am two for two. I just one more that I, that I got to go today. I'm very proud of myself right now. Excited. You know, the secret to saying the Old Testament names is just to say them really quickly and then um, say it confidently and pretend like you know what you're doing. The land had rest 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So we've seen a lot of bad news this morning. We have seen what happens when we forget the Lord and the consequences that follow. But what we also see in chapter 3 this morning is that when we forget the Lord, we will find him faithful to save us when we call. In spite of our faithlessness, we will find him faithful to save us when we call. Now, we brief, briefly met Othniel last week. Incredible story back from, from chapter one. He's the first major judge that we see. And his story sets the stage for the cycle that we're gonna see repeated several more times. And so again, the book of Judges follows this same repetitive cycle. And here's how it's told in the story of Othniel. Verse seven, we're told the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So God's people fall into sin. Verse eight, they're given over to the king of Mesopotamia. So they're oppressed by their enemies, just the way the Lord said they would be. Verse nine, the people cry out to the Lord for help. Verse 10, the Lord raises up Othniel to deliver them. Verse 11, God's people enjoy peace and the land had rest for 40 years. Everything is really, really good in verse 11. Then we get to verse 12. We make it one verse, right? And, and this is what we see in chapter three, verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, everybody say again. That's the story of Judges. Again, did what was evil in the sights of, of the Lord. Now, 
When we get here to chapter three, the story of Ehud is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. It's really, really long. It's a long narrative. Um, so for time this morning, I'm just gonna summarize it for you and challenge you to go read it later. But here's, here's the story of Ehud. Um, so again, the, the people have rejected the Lord. They have fallen into sin and the Lord gives them over into the hand of a king named Eglon, who is the king of Moab. And, and so they're pressed by Eglon for 18 years. They cry out to the Lord and the Lord raises up Ehud, who we're told is a left-handed, man. So who are all the lefties in in the room? I'm not. Listen, you lefties, everything you do looks cooler than the rest of us. Like your handwriting, uh, my goodness, swinging a baseball bat, it's beautiful. Golf club, throwing anything. You look so much better than than the rest of us do. Ahud was a left-handed man. And, and this is what we're told he does, is the Lord raises him up. It says he fashions, he crafts this small sword, and he attaches it to his right hip. So he's, he's like the original carry conceal, right? Like he's, he's got it under on his, on his right hip, and he goes to Eglon. He says, he's like, King, I have, a, I have a secret message for you. And so Eglon wants to hear this, and he clears out the room. And, and like, you know, Russell Crowe Academy Award style, he delivers this, this killer line he, he goes up to Eglon, he says, I have a message from God for you. And he pulls out this sword and he thrusts it into Eglon's gut. Now I'm not being mean here. Read your Bible. Verse 17 says of Eglon that he was a very fat man. And apparently he was so big that, that his gut just swallowed the entire blade along with the handle. And it just went inside. And then we're told that dung spilled all over the place. Enjoy your lunch today. Thus says the Lord. It's in your Bible. I'm not making it up. And, and this is what happens. So, so then while this is all in ha- happening, Ehud escapes. The servants of Eglon are outside like, this is getting weird. He's been in there for a while. Read your Bible. They have a conversation. They're like, is he in the can? Like, what is going on in there? Should we go in? Should we not? Finally, they go in there. They find him dead. What Ehud has been doing is he's been rallying up the people of Israel. And he goes and gets the people of Israel and, and they take down 10,000 Moabites. And again, the land of Israel has peace for 80 years. And then the cycle repeats again. Ehud gets all the attention in chapter three, but don't sleep on your boy Shamgar. This is all we know about Shamgar. He gets one verse. Chapter three, it's the very, very, very end of chapter three. This is all we know about Shamgar. He had an ox goad. And this was, uh, it was basically like a long tool handle with a sharp spearhead type thing attached to the end to it. He would literally use it to goad an ox, to, to move it along. All we know about Shamgar is this at the end of chapter three. It says, Shamgar killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad and he also saved Israel the end. That's all you need to know. It's, it's like the author of Judges is saying, like, I think you get the point now. The same thing keeps happening and different people are raised up to, to deliver. And again, like it's, it's so easy for us. We read all these stories. You're like, how do they keep repeating this over and over and over again? Guys, if we're being honest, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. And, and listen, I, I know where some of you are today. Like you, you feel like you, you've been fighting literally the exact same battle your entire life against a problem or a desire or a temptation. And you, you're just feeling like completely overwhelmed by it and feeling like there is absolutely no hope for you. But listen, you and I read these stories today differently than the people who were experiencing them 3,400 years ago. Because something has happened in the span of those 3,400 years that gives us a hope that those people did not yet have. See, in Israel, every single time a judge was raised up, they wondered, maybe this is our Messiah. Maybe this is our Savior. And every single time that they would be let down over and over and over again, either they would do something really, really foolish and, and made fools out of themselves, 
or their enemies rose up again and conquered them again, or eventually, as with all these judges, one day they, they died. And, and so the people lived in, in this constant state of anticipation and desire where they were, they were constantly going, man, if only we had a perfectly righteous judge who never sinned, if only we had a judge who could completely forever deliver us from the hand of our enemies. If only we had a judge who lived forever and never died. And this is the good news for you and I today. We have that judge. We have a perfectly righteous judge who never sinned. We have a perfectly righteous judge who has completely forever defeated God's enemies. We have a perfectly righteous judge who died, but then on the third day he walked out of the grave. The judge they were waiting for is the judge you and I know, and his name is Jesus. This is who we have. And so listen, hang your hat on this this morning. This is what I want you to take away. It's very, very simple. Remember to remember. Remember to remember. You are gonna forget a lot of things in your life. Church, we can never cease to forget Jesus. Rest assured that there are consequences for our sins. We, we cannot passively give in to sinful desire and live in sin and still expect that we're gonna receive the blessing of God. His word has warned us that's not going to happen and he's gonna keep his word. But as sure as you can be that there are consequences for our sin, you can be even more sure there is deliverance for sinners. And you find that deliverance in the name of Jesus. Remember to remember and never forget what he's done. So will you bow your heads with me as we close together this morning? We're gonna take communion in just a moment. And at communion, we remember. Jesus said every time we do this, we remember his death and we proclaim it until he returns. And so as we partake in just a moment of the bread and of the cup, as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, we remember all that he has done for us and all that he's been for us. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us this ordinance so that we would never forget. And so Father, this morning as we prepare to take the bread and of the cup, help us to remember. Help us to never forget the consequences of our sin Help us always to remember the deliverance you offer to sinners. Help us to remember and never forget. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen.